Welcome to the Global Treasures Podcast. I'm Abigail Vaca. And I'm Keith Berthiam. We're two travelers with a passion for exploring world heritage sites that have been designated as having outstanding cultural value to humanity by UNESCO, a Bureau of the United Nations. We'll spend each episode exploring these places, their history, the people who built them, and who now work to preserve them for all of our benefit. What makes the concept of World Heritage Sites really unique is the idea that these places belong to all people, no matter where they physically live. There are 1,157 sites across the world, with more being added every year. We're going to release episodes in the order by year these sites were originally added to the list, starting with the first sites designated in 1978. With that out of the way, let's get started. In this episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to Laons Aux Meadows, which is a historical Norse settlement that's almost a thousand years old. It's located on the northernmost tip of the island of Newfoundland, Canada. It was designated a National Historic Site by Canada in 1968 and officially categorized as a World Heritage Site of Canada in 1978. I had actually never heard of this site prior to researching it for this episode, so I'm really excited to dive in. It is a French-English name, which is translated to Bay with Grasslands. When this site was excavated, evidence showed that the site was a base camp for Norse exploration of North America. I grew up learning that Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas for the Europeans. Yeah, I'm that old. We even had songs when we were kids about his three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. One of them goes something like, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and there was some other words. Well, the Vikings had him and his crew beat by almost 500 years. In this episode, you'll see that historians, archaeologists, and explorers studied the Vinland sagas, which are two Viking books that trace the adventures of Vikings, including one Leif Erikson from Greenland to the northern part of the Americas. These books were written in the 13th century and described voyages to Vinland, which was thought to mean Wineland. These sagas describe the topography, natural resources, and native culture in the Americas. In the 1960s, explorer Helga Ingsted and archaeologist Anne Stein Ingsted, a husband and wife team, used the Vinland sagas to find and excavate the only confirmed Norse site in North America outside of Greenland. Something to note is that we use Norse and Viking interchangeably. And this is because Vikings originated from what is now modern-day Norway and Denmark. 800 Norse objects have actually been dug up at the site. There are many daily items as well as artifacts that show the presence of workshops. Some of the important items that have been excavated and identified were things like a stone oil lamp, a whetstone, a bronze fastening pin, a bone knitting needle, and even part of a spindle, probably used for weaving. One of the buildings excavated actually had stone weights, which actually may have been part of a loom as well. The spindle and needle has prompted archaeologists and historians to suggest that women, and not just men, might have also been at the settlement. Food was found at the site as well, including butternuts, which are white walnuts. The reason this is significant is because those don't grow north of Brunswick, which is roughly 300 miles south of the site. This means that the Norse were traveling further into North America from this site to explore. 
Even further evidence showed that the Norse hunted many animals that live in the area, including things like caribou, wolf, fox, bear, many types of birds and fish, seal, whale, and even walrus. Other findings show that there was iron production and bronze production going on. Stone artifacts have been found as well. Today, the site is mostly open grassy lands, but a thousand years ago, there were forests that were abundant, and the Norse most likely made use of this for boat building, house building, and iron extraction. The site takes up about 31 square miles of land and sea, and contains the remains of eight buildings constructed with sod over a wood frame. With the density and location of the artifacts that were dug up in these positions, it's actually believed that these eight buildings were both dwellings and workshops. The largest of these buildings was really impressive considering they were building these with no modern technology. It measured 94 feet by 51 feet, which is about a third of the length of a football field. It had several rooms with different functions. Three of the smaller buildings may have been workshops or living quarters for lower status crew or maybe even slaves. The workshops have actually been identified by the items that were left behind. One of them is an iron smithy, which is a place that produced iron works. They know this because it contained a forge and some leftover iron slag, which is kind of like waste. There was also a carpentry workshop, which had wood debris, and a separate boat repair area where worn rivets were found. So something I didn't know when I was doing research, I'm sure you came across, Keith, when was the site originally discovered? Yeah, so you know I'm kind of a geek about this stuff, so this is really fascinating. This is kind of like an adventure story. So in 1960, the site was discovered on the tip of Newfoundland Island by the Norwegian husband and wife team of explorer Helga Instad and archaeologist Anne Stein Engstad. They used the Vinland sagas, which are two Icelandic texts that were written actually independently from one another in the 13th century. So both of these books describe events that took place between the years 970 and 1030. They both contain different accounts of voyages to a place called Vinland. It's important that there were two texts because this made it possible to more accurately find the sites. I don't know that I understand that. So wouldn't it be more confusing and kind of confuse archaeologists and historians if there are two different accounts via two different texts? Yeah, so these that's an interesting thing because these two texts, the Saga and the Greenlanders and the Saga of Eric the Red, both contain stories of adventurers leaving Greenland to explore or like further afield via boats. Due to the oral tradition of Viking storytelling back then, each story cannot be deemed historically accurate by itself. However, because these two texts can be cross-referenced with each other, commonalities can start to be found and kind of put together. Okay, that makes more sense. So that kind of explains how they discovered this site, despite it being what I would consider a needle in a haystack. Because the sagas describe the topography, natural resources, and the native cultures, this led the Ingstead team to a specific place in Canada to look. Because you can compare the events of both books, a more accurate timeline and trek can be constructed. But how exactly did they narrow down where to look? Yeah, this is cool too. They got some help. In 1960, a guy by the name of George Decker, who was a resident of the small fishing hamlet of Lonsox Meadow, led Helga instead to a group of mounds 
somewhat near the village that the people in the area called the Old Indian Camp. The mounds that were there were covered in grass and looked like the remains of old houses. The Ingsteads then carried out several archaeological, excuse me, archaeological excavations of the site between 1961 and 1968. What they found was amazing. They found eight buildings and maybe even a ninth. Abigail, I think you mentioned that you came across how the name itself was throwing researchers off for so long. Am I right about that? Actually, yeah, I did. So, originally, many archaeologists and researchers doubted this location because of the word Vinland, which was thought to have meant Wineland, which you touched on before. Historians speculated that the region they explored must have contained wild grapes, so they thought that this site must have been south of the coast of Massachusetts in the United States, because that's as far north as wine grapes grow naturally. This, of course, is incorrect, because wild grapes have grown, and still grow, along the coast of New Brunswick and the St. Lawrence River Valley of Quebec, which is much further north. So, the name might not mean Wineland? Maybe not. The Ingsteads doubted that the camp would be further to the south because they thought the name Vinland meant land of meadows that includes a peninsula. Very specific. They further supported this by claiming that the Norse would probably not have been comfortable settling in any area along the American Atlantic coast. Believe it or not, these two different ideas probably resulted in a language mistake. Okay, so languages are kind of my jam. I'm kind of a Duolingo fanatic. What do you mean by language mistake? Well, there were two opposing thoughts. One where the camp must have been south of Massachusetts, and then the other that it must have been further north. And this was because there were two ways historically in which the first vowel sound of Vinland could be pronounced. Okay, that is awesome. So it was a pronunciation thing that threw people off. I love that. And since this was oral tradition for so long, it was probably written down incorrectly. So before we mentioned that butternuts were found, right? So this is another huge hint as to the adventures of the Vikings, as these butternuts only grew further south in New Brunswick. This means that they must have been exploring really far down the eastern coast of North America, enough perhaps to make contact with the wild grapes that were actually mentioned in the sagas. The site itself is further authenticated because of carbon dating. So carbon dating is a process that uses nuclear chemistry to calculate how old something is. So from that scientific process, estimates from carbon dating place most of the objects found at the site between 990 and 1050 AD. Separate tree ring analysis done at the site dates the site to the exact year of 1021. So why is this important? Well, anytime you have two separate scientific processes, both dating the site the same, that raises the confidence in the findings even further. All of this evidence makes Lonsdok's Metal the only site that is clearly pre-Columbian transoceanic contact of the Europeans with the Americas, outside of Greenland, of course. So Eleanor Baraclau, who is a teacher of medieval history and literature at Durham University, claims that the site was probably not a permanent settlement, but perhaps a temporary boat repair spot. She goes on to make note that there are no findings of burials, tools, or animal pens, which would suggest that the Norse left the site in an orderly fashion. Keith, 
Did you find out how many people lived and worked at the site? Actually, there's really no way to know how many people lived at the site at the time. The best way to determine this is simply by the size of the buildings. The buildings had the capacity to support, and I know this is a wide range, but roughly 30 to 160 people. The entire population of Greenland at the time, which is about 930 miles to the northeast, was only about 2,500 people. This would also make it extremely unlikely that the Vikings constructed more than just this settlement in North America. Historians have suggested that there could have been other Norse sites, or at least Norse Native American contacts, in the Canadian Arctic. In 2012, possible Viking outposts were located in Nanook at Tanfield Valley on Baffin Island, as well as Nungukuvik, Willows Islands, and Avialik Islands. Point Rosé in southwestern Newfoundland was also shown by National Geographic and the BBC as a possible Norse site excavated in 2015 and 2016. But there wasn't any evidence of Norse presence being found. That's so cool. All right, now that we've talked about the history, let's actually talk about what to expect when visiting the site. Yeah, sure. I'll give a rundown of logistics and some things to keep in mind if you're planning on traveling here. If you're flying in, your only option is to fly into the St. Anthony Airport and rent a car. There seem to be some bed and breakfasts, RV parks, and smaller mom and pop places you can stay in, but not really any chain hotels I could find. Once you drive to La Anse, you'll have to pay an inexpensive entrance fee. At the time of this recording, it's also free for those under 17 years old, which is a nice break for families trying to stretch their budget. They do daily tours from the visitor center, and the government website suggests spending at least two to three hours touring the trails and the site itself. There's also a Viking encampment, which sounds essentially like a live reenactment. You can get a feel for what day-to-day life was like back then, from seeing how different professions, such as blacksmiths, carried out their daily duties, as well as chores the average family would have had to accomplish without modern-day appliances, like how they cooked their meals. Around this site, there are also a lot of boat tours to see whales and the beautiful icebergs as well. In terms of attendance, 30 to 40,000 people visit the site annually, so it's unlikely you'll be fighting huge crowds. Still, we do always recommend that you plan ahead. The site is open to visitors from June to October. During the summer and fall, when you would be visiting, the weather is in the low to mid-60s, and that's in Fahrenheit, so you probably want to pack a sweater. So, um, Abigail, all this talk of Vikings reminded me of an old joke. So what do you call a vegetarian Viking? No, I'm supposed to be the one with the jokes. They call them a Norwegian. Oh, that's a bad one. Okay, I'm, I'm ignoring that and moving on. So I made the assumption when researching this episode that French was the official language, but it's not. English is, although it does seem like many locals can speak both languages. So what's the food in the area like? Much more interesting and diverse than expected, to be honest. Cod tongue is one specialty. 
And it's not actually a fish tongue. That's a misnomer. It's a muscle in the fish's neck that they typically fry. And you'll see cod on just about every restaurant menu. Fish and brew is another popular dish. And this is fish, again, usually cod, soaked overnight along with hardtack. And for those of you who don't know, hardtack is basically a nasty dried out biscuit. This dish was originated by sailors who didn't really have any other options because they needed food that would last a long time at sea and was lightweight. They figured out that marinating the hardtack made it tastier. I also noted a lot of the restaurant menus have game meats, such as moose, which I am fully on board with. Well, I'm not sure I would try it, as maybe Norse food is simply not to my Viking. (laughs) Anyways, did you come across any folklore or urban legends you want to touch on? A little bit. It seems that the majority of paranormal activity that surrounds this site happens between the months of June and August. Although I couldn't find anything in my research that would point to why those months are hot spots, except that that's when the site is open. Local fishermen and travelers alike state they've seen and heard ghost ships come into the wharf at all hours of the night, but no one ever debarks, and then the ship will disappear altogether. There have also been reports of hushed voices speaking in a foreign language near the water or sounds of a ship rocking near the dock, but when the person approaches, there's nothing there. Many believe it's the sound of a Viking ghost crew destined to travel their watery grave for all eternity. Well, that's creepy. It reminds me of an old Viking saying I heard a long time ago. If a boat disappears, you know that there must have been a disturbance in the Norse. Okay, never mind. I knew that there was Norway. You'd laugh at that. Okay, you were just killing me in this episode. Uh, Back to what I was saying. I think I'd choose not to visit at night knowing these ghost stories, although I might throw Keith out to sea for all of these bad jokes. But for our final portion of today's episode, I want to talk about challenges faced keeping this site preserved for future generations. And I think I'm so excited to transition to this because it seems like this site doesn't have many issues in terms of potential damage done by tourists or locals probably because it's a pretty remote and large area of land. Plus, it's a small population. Only half a million or so people live in Newfoundland and Labrador, and the government also very carefully manages the number of tourists that visit annually. Both the government of Canada and the government of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador work in tandem to make sure that the site stays protected. Parks Canada manages the conservation piece as a part of the Canada National Parks Act and Canada Parks Agency Act. Steps they take include protecting artifacts from the Viking base camp, which have to be stored at specific temperatures within the museums. Also, the original archaeological site was reburied in such a way as to protect the findings from degradation. This is frequently done at sites across the globe, so that when future excavation missions are conducted, the site will still be preserved. The thought behind this is that in the future, there will be updated technology to discover new information about the site, 
so it can continue to be enjoyed by generations to come. All right, that's really good news that they're not worried about this site because we've had a couple of sites recently where we're just a little bit worried about it. So I actually am really excited because I have a lot of like Vikings and Norse jokes and I got one more. Can I do one more? Absolutely not. Awesome. So I'll do one more. So why do Viking ships have barcodes on them? I have no idea. That's so when they get to port, they can scan the Navy in. Thank you for listening to the Global Treasures podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, if you've been enjoying the podcast, could you please leave a review with feedback and share it with your networks? Reviews actually raise our ratings, which will help others find the podcast. We're working hard for you, and we'd love to share this with more people. Even a five-star rating without words is great, but we would love for your feedback to be in those reviews. We'll see you next time.